0: My name is Aubrey. Sorry about that. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm very glad to get to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with you today. If you brought a Bible, uh, find um, our reading in John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of what's going on in our church these days in this series of sermons. Uh, At the beginning of Jesus's ministry... In, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells the church that we're a city on a hill. And then on the last pages of the Bible, the last thing that Jesus tells, tells us is that you're the church. You're a city on a hill. And so we're in this particular... I'm really discombobulated this morning. Sorry about this. My uh, collar. There it goes. So we're in this series of sermons where we're looking into the Bible to say... What does it mean for us to be the church today in the midst of what we're going on? What does it mean to be a shining city on a hill here in Harrisonburg at this particular moment in time with all of the turmoil going on in our world? So over the last several weeks, we've seen that in the Bible, when it says the church is a shining city on the hill, Part of what it's referencing is light and darkness. Part of what we've seen is that there is a dark power in this world. And from the first pages of the Bible, we see from the very start that there's this dark, evil power in the world. And it's been intent on destroying God's good creation from the very beginning. And we don't really understand this power. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about it. It doesn't tell us where it came from. It's just there all of the sudden. And when we're caught up in awful circumstances or real injustices or a terrible plague or when we're falsely accused of wicked things or we're suffering from a strange sickness for no apparent reason, let alone cure, at these moments, we, the church, the followers of Jesus, Our first job is to lament. We are to complain to God. We're to state the case to him that this is not how it's supposed to be. And it doesn't have to be this way. And it can change. And that he is supposed to be the sovereign judge of the whole universe. He's supposed to sort this stuff out. And then we're supposed to leave it with him. Now last week we saw that's what Job did. And God himself declares at the end of Job, when Job did that, when he went to God and complained and said, God, this is your job to deal with this. And at the end of the book of Job, God says, in lamenting to me, Job spoke the truth about me. Lament is how Job clung to the face of God Even though his own miserable life seemed to deny that God was just, it's in lament that he was clinging to the justice of God. And and we see in the book of Job and all through the Psalms that when we do this, when we lament in this kind of way, it's not a hopeless lament. Over and over in the Psalms, we see that hope grows out of lament. Now, if you brought along a copy of the Bible, like I said, find our gospel reading, the gospel of John chapter 11. Now, in this passage of the Bible, we find Jesus and his followers going to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has clearly stated that that dark, evil power is going to get him when he gets to Jerusalem. It's waiting for him when he gets there. And so as he makes his way to Jerusalem, it's loaded with kind of this kind of ominous music playing in the background of John's narrative. And right before he gets to Jerusalem, about two miles out of the city, he arrives at this little community. And the name of the community is Bethany. Beth, in the language of their day, means house. Ani means suffering. It means poverty. It means the poor. Literally, Jesus, before he gets to Jerusalem, arrives at a little house of the poor. Now, there's some evidence that this community was literally that. That it was a place where poor and needy and sick people went to be cared for. It was kind of a proto-hospice community. And some of Jesus' dearest friends lived there some of his best friends, that is the life they are living. And one of those friends, Lazarus, is apparently living there, being cared for by these women, Mary and Martha, his sisters. And Lazarus has been sick, and he just recently died. And notice in John chapter 11, verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice verse 32. The other sister, Mary. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 37, notice the nameless crowd that have gathered in grief. They say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And in this question... We hear a question that we have all asked. A question that echoes down through the years with every new tragedy. If God is God, if he has this power, if he has this love, why? Why did this tragedy happen to someone I love? If he has the power to stop it, what does it mean about him that he didn't stop it? And in the middle of all of this questioning... Of all of these accusations, of all of these laments and complaints, how does Jesus respond? What is Jesus doing in the middle of all of this kind of tense, chaotic accusation and complaint? Verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with him her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Lord, come and look at the death and the evil and the destruction. You need to see what we've seen. You need to stop your business and come to the place of misery. And he does. And it says the next thing Jesus did was he saw it and he wept. Jesus wept. And it's one of the most remarkable moments in the Bible. Not only because when I was a kid I felt like I memorized the, the a verse of scripture because yeah, it was the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And, but remember the way John starts his gospel is by saying in no uncertain terms that this Jesus is God in the flesh. That that. When we look at Jesus here, we are looking at God Himself in the flesh standing near the tomb of His dear friend weeping. And in this moment, you are seeing the actual tears of God. This is God's tears. We're not just seeing a flesh and blood human being. We are seeing the word made flesh. The one through whom the worlds were made is weeping like a baby at the grave of his friend. Do you see that God himself is in tears? He is crying with the world. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4, we're told this about Jesus. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. So here we see that Jesus' response to tragedy and pain and suffering is not to sweep into the room and to declare the complaints against him out of order. It's not to sweep in the room and turn the tables on Martha and Mary and the crowd who are accusing him and being critical of him. He doesn't say your suffering is because you're sinful. You ought to repent. He says, let me look at it. And then he does, and then he weeps. Here we see Jesus, God himself in the flesh, the man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief, not in a technical way, not in a formal way, not like you're acquainted with something going on somewhere else, but come right up into the middle of it, acquainted with it in the most intimate way, and he shares it, and he bears it to the point of death. Now, what exactly does this mean for us as a city on a hill in practice? Well, turn to our New Testament reading. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And let me show you how this plays out into our own lives today. Romans chapter 8 is, I think, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. People who are familiar with this passage, chapter often memorized the whole thing. It's, it's one of the most commonly memorized chapters of the Bible. And, and when you really grow to love it and know it, you over and over I've found that Christians just stand in awe of this chapter. It, it's full of faith and hope and love. It starts with this amazing declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is glorious. Our world and its kind of discovery of guilt and shame and all of the kind of work that's going on in in the mental health community around shame it's just deepened our understanding of what's going on. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it ends in verse 37 with these amazing poetic lines. And all these things were more than victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus our Lord. I mean, it starts with no condemnation. It's, it ends with the kind of total envelopment in God's love. If we know anything at all about Christianity we know that's true. We know that victory over all the dark powers, the dark powers inside of us and the dark powers outside of us. We know that security in this present age and in the age to come is is glory. We know that all of this outpouring of the love of God in Jesus Christ, this is what Christianity is about. And yet In the middle of that chapter that starts with no condemnation and ends with this incredible outpouring of the love of God, in the middle of this chapter is lament. Right in the middle of it. Notice verse 22. The entire creation is groaning. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan. And then in verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings. Too deep for words. Do you you see the three groanings? Creation is groaning, the church is groaning, the spirit of God inside the church is groaning. And so smack in the middle of one of the greatest chapters of all the Bible, a chapter that begins and ends with a glorious celebration of the victory of God over death and suffering, in the middle of this chapter, we find the world groaning. And in that, we recognize our world right now. Groaning. Groaning. The stress and distress that our world is experiencing right now. It is overwhelming. And so our job is to do what? To groan with the world. Not to stand outside of the pain of the world. In the security and hope of the love of God. But to enter right into the groanings of the world. And do what ourselves? Groan with the world. And that's what will happen. If you let the calamity our world is going through right now sink in. I mean, something like they think right now, um, officially a million people have died from the coronavirus. And they're, they're convinced that they're really not able to track all of it. That it's even more than that. I mean, so think about this for a moment. Think that every one of those people was a son or a daughter a friend or a colleague, thousands of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, and the toll of loss and sorrow is so many times greater than the death toll. Remember, thousands have died without the comfort of family or friends or pastor at their deathbeds. These are horrible things. Think of wives and children locked into houses with abusers. Think of the depressed for whom isolation is squeezing out the last remnants of hope. And they don't know if they're going to make it. Think of the sick who deteriorate because they're too scared to go to the hospital. Think of restaurant owners who are losing their businesses, the retail sales clerks laid off in middle age, the nurses and doctors who are in the line of duty. Think of millions huddled in their homes, terrified to venture it out. These are horrible things. It's not just the virus, it's all this collateral damage. And when you stop and think and you allow yourself, which is what we're supposed to do right now. We're supposed to stand in the middle of the groaning of the world. When you allow yourself to feel the sheer wreckage going on in our society. When you do that, in the words of T.S. Eliot, when you be still and let the dark come upon you. When you do this, it produces a groaning. It empties you of all words. Some of you know what it's like to suffer to the point where you cannot pray, where you cannot talk about it. This remarkable passage of Scripture. Teaches us that at that very moment, when the suffering strikes us mute, that at that same moment, God Himself is struck mute. That's how close He gets to it. This is what the shining city of God does with the pain and suffering of the world it draws it in because we walk in the footsteps of a Savior who said let me see and then drew it in and then didn't come out with platitudes or explanations but came out with tears at those moments when we find ourselves weeping with the grief of a suffering of a daughter or a mother, at the tomb of a friend, at the horror of millions of the world's poorest, who are the most vulnerable, or over the depression of someone we love who finds this season of life to be overwhelming, in those moments when we do not have any words to say, but only tears and sobs, we must remind ourselves this is how the Spirit of God is present In the agony of creation. If the spirit of God groans at the suffering. If Jesus groans at the suffering. Do you know in John chapter 11 that we read earlier. When right after he was at the tomb and he wept. The next thing it tells us is that Jesus deeply moved. You know what? Literally in Greek that is bellowing with anger. Our translations are too weak at this moment to capture what's going on with God. God himself, God in the flesh, at the tomb of Lazarus, bellowing. God himself, God in the spirit, in our hearts. When we are groaning, God himself groaning. When our hearts are groaning and the creation is groaning and God the Father knows the mind of the spirit. He knows what the spirit is thinking. But here's a mystery. The spirit doesn't even know how to articulate what the spirit is going through. Do you see what I am saying is that God the creator facing his world in meltdown is he himself struck wordless and groans in pain. God the creator whose word brought all things into being and pronounced it very good has no appropriate words to the misery of our world right now. Our pain, our suffering, our wounds, many things, they bring grief to God and shock him. This was something we saw in our Old Testament passage. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 30 through 31. God's own people practicing human sacrifice. And you know how God responds to it? He said, human sacrifice never even entered my mind. Literally, actually it says never. Literally, it's in Hebrew, never entered my heart. I never even dreamed of this. This is an evil that didn't even enter in my calculation. Now, this is a mysterious paradox, right? God is in control. God knows all things. And yet, evil as an intruder into God's creation is this mysterious thing. And any attempt to analyze what it is or why it's allowed or what God does with it, apart from the fact that God overcomes it through Jesus' death for sinners, any attempt to solve that riddle apart from that is filled with danger. What I'm saying is, in the face of the world we're living in right now, we need a deep humility. When our friends and loved ones, our neighbors, and even our enemies are suffering deeply, we are supposed to be humble in the face of that. Not to think we've got the answers, but too often we can be like friends of Job, can't we? We can swoop into suffering. We can come next to evil. And instead of weeping like Jesus does, we open our mouth and try to explain it. And in our case, I think part of our problem is that over the last year... Two or 300 years we've lived in a worldview of rationalism where science gives explanations and, and where logic explains things and this whole approach to the world is soaked into the church and the rationalist critics of Christianity say things like ah oh, look modern science shows us Christianity is false and in response rationalist Christians say no let me show you how completely rational Christianity is and all of this can lead us into a posture of having an answer for everything so we want to say things in moments of deep suffering like well God is sovereign he must either have done this deliberately or at least permitted it deliberately because his will is going to win out we, we think we should be able to see what God is up to but if Job shows us anything it's that Job never knew what God was up to it's only the reader with the omniscient God's eye perspective who. but, but the point of Job is it. When you're in deep suffering, you can't know what's going on. There, you don't know what God is up to. We, we think we should be able to, but if Jesus crying at the tomb of Lazarus on his way to the cross, where he's going to defeat death and resurrection, where he's going to bring in the new creation, if Jesus on the way there is weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, it shows us if it shows us anything is that we can't know what God is always up to. And if Romans 8 teaches us anything, it teaches us that we really aren't given that kind of access to the problem of evil. So we need a humility. When, when the world is a mess, it's very easy to imagine the church standing back and say, what a pity, the world's in such a mess. At least we know the answer. But no, Paul says that when the world is groaning in labor pains, and we Christians are groaning, and God himself is groaning, that's the response. Now this is very strange. It's, It is a mystery, but I think part of what it means is that in order to rescue the world, God comes in the person of his son to take the weight of sin upon himself, and God comes in the person of the spirit to be the one who groans in the church where the world is at pain. So let's take our place humbly among the mourners. Grief, after all, is a part of love. And this is the first response of the church in moments like we're living through. Now, I'm going to conclude by making three observations about what that can mean for us. Number one, in America today, it's widely assumed that culture is nothing more than a mask for power and power is oppressive. But according to Christianity, almighty God empties himself of his power... To become incarnate as a human being, embracing the weakness and the suffering of the cross in order to redeem the fallen world, rising from the dead to make the new creation a place of love. But do you see, do you see in this that God is showing us a different way that being in control, what it looks like? Being a Christian is not so much a person who's figured out the problem of pain and suffering and injustice and evil. Being a Christian is to be a person who has come to love and trust a God who has himself suffered. The second thing, do you see that in John chapter 11, the God who made the world became human as Jesus of Nazareth, and he is not sitting upstairs somewhere, looking down and saying, okay, I'll sort out all your mess. He's the God who comes down and gets his hands dirty and his hands pierced in order to be where we are to rescue us from there. And what I'm saying, number two, is this. Seeing this about God is very, it is profoundly comforting, when I grieve, when the evil that I encounter, I have no words for and I can't pray, and all I can do is weep, for me to know that in that moment, it's not only my tears. The spirit of God himself is inside of me weeping with me. That I'm not alone in that moment. That the Holy Spirit of Almighty God is weeping. And this is one of the things that marks out the Christian faith. As distinct from pretty much any other worldview that I know of. And third and final. When we the church. When we share in the groaning of the world. And the groaning of the spirit. This is one of the most powerful ways that God transforms us into the image of his son. Lament is one of the most powerful discipling tools of God in our life. It is part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. And as the spirit laments within us, so we become, even in our pain, we become small shrines where the presence and the healing love of God dwells. And it it changes us into the image of the Son of God who said, let me see, and then bellowed and wept. Now, this is where the church starts. Because this is where the Old Testament tells us to start. And this is where Jesus started. It's the starting point. I'm going to say to you again, like I said last week, if you have not lamented, if you have not gotten still and let the darkness come over you, you need to. You need to do whatever it takes. You need to find one of those psalms of lament. You need to read them and you need to draw in the pain of the world. You need to figure out the pain of the world that comes into you. But this is only the starting point. And starting next week, we'll see that there is plenty of practical actions to be done beyond lament. But whatever the church does in this moment, in the political chaos we're going through and it's about to get awful, whatever we do in this moment must grow out of tears. If it doesn't start in tears, we're in profound danger Of just saying a thing we wanted to say anyway, of just acting out of our own flesh. The actions of the church must grow out of lament. And when you read the gospel, you recognize that sometimes tears are the most crucial element in the plot of the story. Let's pray.